Ecclesia is a new church trying to live out the way of Jesus in Princeton, New Jersey. We pray this teaching invites you to love Jesus and people more deeply and to embrace the full life that Jesus offers each one of us. Grace and peace to you. Good morning, Ecclesia. For those of you who have not met me yet, my name is Danielle and I am one of the new interns on staff this year. And I have been given the great honor of continuing our series on Revelations entitled, Come. But just a few weeks ago, I decided to go for a morning walk. And right by my apartment, there is this beautiful canal that leads straight through Princeton. And if any of you have been on that path before, you know that it's just covered in nature and it's a great place to just clear your head before a busy week. So I was going along that path, just spotting fish and turtles, and then I heard this sound that did not come from nature, and that was my cell phone. And when I looked at my phone, I saw that I received a text from Pastor Ian asking me to preach on the book of Revelation. And for those of you who have never been a church intern before, let me just tell you, that is not the text you expect to receive from your pastor. Usually, it's something along the lines of, hey, can you pick up the communion bread before service or set up chairs for this event? You don't expect to be asked to preach on one of arguably the most complex books in the Bible. But instead of jumping to conclusions, I just decided to go home after my walk and dive into the text. And when I did, I was actually so surprised at what a poetic and symbolic book it is and it even allowed me to see God in a new way. So if you guys have ever been intimidated by the book of Revelations, I just wanna tell you that we are in this together. We're going to break apart this book piece by piece and let God's truth flow out of it. But as we go about this, I wanna ask the big question of what is this chapter trying to tell us about God as well as worship? And how do we respond to that? But before we dive into the scripture, I want to provide a little bit of context to what we're reading. So as Ian mentioned in the past couple weeks, our writer is a man named Paul who is living in the time of the early church. And he's also in exile at the time that this book is written. This book is also heavily influenced by the political and cultural climate of that time. And we will see a lot of influence in that in his writing. There's also gonna be many references to events that are happening in John's time, as opposed to references to things that are happening in the future. And that's a common misconception for the book of Revelation. And lastly, our writer is very well versed in the stories and prophecies of the Old Testament. And we are going to see many references throughout the entire book to those. So let's dive right in. If you have your Bible, please turn to Revelation 4, verse 1, which says, After this I looked, and there in heaven a door stood open, and the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here. I will show you what must take place after this. So right off the bat, John is making a reference to the Old Testament that his audience would definitely recognize. This open door to heaven is also found in Ezekiel's prophecy. And it helps his readers to realize that the following text is a revelation from God or that God is trying to reveal something about himself. But this opening to heaven can also be found in the gospel of Mark and John during Jesus's baptism when the heavens open and when Jesus explains what will happen during the crucifixion. 
Now let's move down to verses 2 and 3. It says, At once I was in the Spirit, and there in heaven stood a throne, with one seated on the throne. And the one seated there looks like Jasper and Carnelian, and around the throne is a rainbow that looks like an emerald. So what John is doing here is describing this awe-inspiring image of this throne. He's using imagery of precious stones and rainbows and blaring lights. And he's really trying to draw this distinction between early leaders like emperors and tyrants and make it clear that they have never sat on a throne like this and they're nothing like our God. But this image of a divine throne also shows up multiple times throughout the book of Revelation. It is actually mentioned up to 17 times in chapters 4 and 5. And again, John is trying to claim that these Roman emperors are nothing like our God. Even this rainbow that we see in this image is a symbol, most, most scholars believe, of God's covenant with Noah. And it's believed to symbolize the mercy that God has in the days of judgment. And this stands in stark contrast to the Roman emperors of, those of that time that never exercised mercy on anyone. So back to our main question, what is Revelation 4 saying about God? John is saying, God is divine yet merciful. And that is something they could never say about the leaders of that time. Let's continue to verse 4. It says, Around the throne are 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones are 24 elders, dressed in white robes with golden crowns on their heads. So right here, I want you to notice the 24 elders. This is seen as a reference to the Old Testament elders in Exodus. And during, the, during that time, the elders were basically seen as representatives for specific groups of people. And they even stood before God's glory on Sinai. Those same elders are also seen in Isaiah's prophecy, <clears throat> Isaiah's prophecy of the end times. But in this throne scene, they represent all of God's people in one place. And when you think about that, that is actually a really beautiful image of every tribe and tongue of believer coming together to worship in the same place. Okay, so let's move on to verse 5, which says, Coming from the throne are flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And in front of the throne burn seven flaming torches, which are the seven spirits of God. So here we have John referencing God's divine throne again, but we have this shift in image. We have this shift in imagery, from jewels and rainbows to thunder and lightning. There's obviously a more powerful image that comes with this, and John is really trying to tell us something about God with this. These are intentional images because both Jews and early Christians believed that thunder was a symbol for sovereignty. But even outside readers would have understood these images because in Mediterranean religions, thunder and lightning symbolized a supreme deity. So basically, John could be holding a flashing sign that says, there is no other God like my God. Just look at his throne. And he wants to show us the difference between the authority of the kings that believed that they were gods and the emperors of that time versus the one true king that literally controls the lightning and the thunder. So with this, he's saying, God is sovereign. 
Let's move down to verse 6. And as we look at this, we begin to see some unusual descriptions of creatures. But I think it's important to realize that each part of these creatures says something about God and is symbolic in some way. So as we read through the second half of verse 6, just try to spot that. It reads, Around the throne and on each side of the throne are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. So after reading this, I don't know about you, but I start to get these images of some extraterrestrial being or that one guy from Monsters, Inc. that is just covered in eyes and some of them keep falling off and he just has to put them back in. But there's actually a subtle message here. See, these beings are covered in eyes because they see all things that happen in heaven and on earth. And nothing is hidden from them. And John is really begging the question here. That if these beings see everything, how much more does our God see everything and watch over his beloved children? Because he's the one that rules over these creatures. Again, John is talking about God's character and how present he is in the chaos of this world. I'm sure this was a relief to the early Christians that heard this because of the time where they were persecuted and had to deal with political tyrants like the emperor. But this is still relevant today. During a pandemic and our own political chaos, God is still present here. So back to our big question, what is John trying to tell us? He's saying that God is all-knowing and present. So verse, verse 7 continues with the description of these creatures. And he describes them as a lion, an ox, a man, and a flying eagle. And these might seem like a, a random list of beings and creatures. But in the early church, these creatures were seen as apex predators. Lions were known for going after shepherds to get to their sheep. Oxen were often aggressive and would attack people if they got out. Obviously, humans can build weapons and fight in combat. And eagles have massive talons and were the top of their food chain. John wants his readers to know that these four creatures are not the ones ruling over heaven, but the ones sitting at the throne worshiping God. He's trying to communicate that God is a God of power and majesty, that even the most powerful and magnificent creatures are bowing down at his throne. So what John is trying to tell us here is God is all-powerful. So let's jump down to verse 11, which recites the song of the elders that they would sing during the worship. And it says, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. So some of the words that stick out here are created all things, existed, and were created. This wording is actually very important because John is pointing out another dichotomy between earthly emperors and God. He's basically saying that his God, our God, is the one that put everything into existence, not these other kings that claim to be God. He's saying that our God is the one that planted the tallest redwood, but also crafted the smallest ladybug. He's the one that put the raging sea into motion, but also the quiet stream. He created every animal 
of every shape and color and design, but also created you and me with such detail. John is saying, I don't care who these, who these kings and these idols claim to be. My God is the author of creation and the one true creator. And again, he's saying, my God is the creator. And that is something that none of these other leaders could ever say. Now, we've already seen what this chapter has to tell us about God. But we have yet to learn what it's saying about worship and how we should apply that to our own lives. So let's jump back up to verse 8 and see what it says. It reads, And the four creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes around and inside. Day and night, without ceasing, they sing, Holy, 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 the Lord God the Almighty, who was and is and is to come. What I want to focus on here is the phrase, day and night without ceasing. This tells us that the entire purpose of the existence of these creatures was to worship God. It was their main and their only heavenly occupation. And when I think about it, I'm actually very jealous. Every day they get to stand in the presence of God and just worship him with complete reverence. But when you think about it, is our calling all that different? Every day we have a new opportunity to worship God. And I'm not just talking about singing songs. How we choose to act and speak and think all has, all has the potential to bring glory to God. We worship him and how we treat our roommate, how we spend our money, how we love our spouse, and how we choose to serve others. Friends, our worship should not cease when we log off this live stream. It should begin. And with that said, the first point I want to make here about worship is that it should be continuous. Let's move down to verse 9. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to the one who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever. So this verse is actually one of the most straightforward in the entire chapter. It tells us exactly how to worship God with a posture of glory and honor and thanks. However, this instructs more of our motivations than it does our actual actions. But let's break this down. So glory, this can often tell us about how our actions bring glory to God or how our ac actions bring praise to God. We can ask, are our relationships and our hobbies reflecting God to the people around us? And is God glorified by the time? Is God glorified by how we spend our time? And moving on to honor, it shows us an element of respect and reverence for God. God has honestly blessed us with such a beautiful planet and so many resources, both natural and financial. And do we honor God with how we choose to steward those? And there's thanks or thanksgiving. It really is a posture of realizing that everything we have comes from God and is a gift from him. So are we taking the time to properly thank God for everything that we have? So going back, this is telling us that worship should give glory and honor and thanks to God. 
Lastly, I want to close with verse 10. And it reads, The 24 elders fall before the one who is seated on the throne and worship the one who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne. So this is actually such a remarkable and beautiful passage. Here we have the 24 elders who we know have been given crowns and thrones before God. And these crowns, they weren't just accessories. They symbolized power and authority and responsibility. Yet they surrendered them before God to lower themselves in an act of worship. And I want to suggest that we have crowns as well. We have our own crowns of power and authority and responsibility. As a congregation, we are students, we are parents, we are business people, caregivers, volunteers, and so much more. And these crowns came from God, so we want to make sure to honor them. In our passage, the word cast is used, but in other translations, it says set, place, or lay the crown before the throne. And I want to point out that the elders did not dispose of or abandon their crowns, but they placed them before God as an act of submission. And we also know through the role model of Jesus that Jesus didn't bask in his divinity and his crown, but he surrendered his crown as God for a crown of thorns. He lowered himself out of obedience to God and love for people. And he's the ultimate example of submission in an act of worship. And I understand. We've been working in overdrive the past couple months with online classes, lack of childcare, and adjusting to new work habits. It can be very exhausting. And these crowns that we've been given can start to weigh very heavy on our heads. But what if the greatest act of worship we could do right now is just to say, hey God, I don't have the strength to uphold this crown without you, this responsibility, and just lay it at his feet. And that is my final point, that worship should be an act of surrender. So wherever you're at spiritually, whether you're a longtime Christian who has a vast knowledge of books like Revelation, or you're still figuring out your faith and can often be intimidated by books like these, kind of like I was, I just want to encourage you with the fact that every act of worship flows into the heavenly worship that we just read about. And even though this book may have been highly symbolic, our worship is still inseparably connected to God. So every way that we choose to bring glory to God, whether big or small, is our participation in the bigger reality of God's heavenly worship. And that's an incredible thing to be a part of. Let's pray. God of mercy and power and creation, we thank you that, that you have invited us into your heavenly worship. We ask that we make our lives an act of worship to you and that in the deepest and darkest times of our life, you reveal your power. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. For more information, please visit www.ecclesianj.com.